Thank you so much, Brian, and thank you so much, everybody. And uh, yeah, I, I really appreciate it. I haven't been, you could probably tell like, from my voice, I'm, I'm not on top physical form at the moment, but I'm very grateful to Fatima for finding me a bunch of pills this morning. And I'm very apologetic to all the people I had conversations with at breakfast, where I was aware I was just like, I don't know, just my head was thumping and I was sweating and I wasn't in very good, very good form. And so a couple of you I had conversations with and I thought, I must have just been, they must think, what is this guy like on the stage? He seems like he's got a lot of energy and this morning he doesn't at all. So thank you for that and thank you for those who've helped me this morning. Um, feeling much better now. Um, when Alan spoke to me about what it might be most helpful to do with this session, he said it would, I think it would really help us to do a bit of an unpacking of the Ephesians 4 gifts and how they work and how they work together. And I thought, that's a dream ticket of a subject. That's brilliant. I loved, I'd love to do that. It'd be a great thing to do. And it also makes the choice of Bible passage so easy. Um, and you might think, therefore, that we were going to be in Ephesians chapter 4, but we're not. And the reason is because Ephesians 4 is not really about the Ephesians 4 ministries. I've got John Hoser in here, so I know I have at least two of us already convinced of this fact, that Ephesians 4 is not really about the Ephesians 4 gifts. The, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the shepherd teachers are basically in a subclause of a verse in Ephesians 4 that's primarily about the unity and maturity of the people of God and how we grow into the head who's Christ. And it's sort of dropped in. Paul says, and he gave all of these gifts in order to make us mature and one and so on. And actually, if you want a passage that's going to talk about how the gifts work, and what they do, Ephesians 4.11 is no help at all, really. They're given by Jesus, and they help make us mature. And you think, well, great, so is every gift. So what, how does that get me any further? Whereas if you want to see how do these gifts actually work, what are they, how do they function together? How do they equip us for mission? What sorts of things might we expect them to do? How might they collaborate? You want to look to the church that originally sent Paul on his apostolic mission in Acts chapter 11. So if you could turn in your Bible to Acts chapter 11, that would be great. This is a church in Antioch, and I think it's much the best example in the New Testament of a short passage that summarizes all of the Ephesians 4 gifts working together. And so I want to look at it a little bit and see what can we learn about how these gifts are meant to function. The apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherd teachers... It's not an exhaustive list. There are many gifts, as you know, but these four or five, but I'll say four uh, because I think shepherds and teachers work as one gift primarily rather than two completely different ones. And those four gifts are all associated with speech and they're all associated with a sort of public leading and, and as such are not of the same, quite the same order as the gift of helping and perhaps the gift of interpreting languages and other gifts, all of which are vital in the church. But these four do seem to have a sort of public speech-based leading role in equipping the church for ministry together. And so we, that's why we tend to I group them together. And we're going to look at Acts chapter 11 and see how they work together. I'm going to start by throwing this out there before we read. One of the best ways of developing and cultivating spiritual gifts in any church is to identify the gifts that are already operating in that church. It's what I, I would want to call a positive version of call-out culture. Right, so call-out culture, if you're familiar with the term, is generally used as a sort of a, a way of talking about the fact that people are always being horrible to each other online and calling people out, and it's all very negative. But I think there's a very positive version of it, which is I, I can see the gift that's working there, and I'm gonna, I name it and identify it, and that's all I'm going to do initially. I'll just say, that was this gift working for the edification of the church. Isn't that great? And then do nothing else. Not try and, I don't know necessarily you have to then put them on a course or give them lots of mentoring. I might do that as well. But even in the act of saying to the church, did you see the gift that God just used? So what Rigby just did when he stood up and said, these three words and they've brought, come together in this way and they've shaped us and that's God speaking this prophetically. What happens is it kind of underlines prophetic gifts working among us. And actually all you then have to do is just and pray. Which, so there was a second thing he did, so let's pray for that. But actually in doing that, you're calling out and identifying, which helps those three individuals, because they go, oh wow, it wasn't way off. But also helps all of us to say, yeah, that is what we believe about the way God would speak. And just by calling it out, you achieve something, right? It's meaningful. And that, so often as a local church, I think calling out gifts and saying that's what that is can be really helpful. We'll come back to that in a moment. But I say that up front because for much of the history of the church, you will know that the gifts of apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers haven't been spoken of in that grouping, at least, of functioning in quite that way. Much of the history of the church is like, these gifts are not talked about. 
or some of them are, and some of them aren't. And I personally am committed, that, I don't think that means they haven't been operating at all. I just think it means that God's been continuing to give gifts to his church, and people have called them something else. I think the risen Christ have been giving, has been giving gifts to the church for the last 2,000 years. I don't think that's just restarted 40 years ago when people started using this language. I think in reality what happens is when God gives a gift to the church and people don't have what I think might be the best biblical word to describe the gift, they just call it something else. And they, and they continue to function with it, and they celebrate it, and they might practice it more than I do, even though I do use the right word for it. And in some ways, I'd rather have the, the reality than the label, personally. And, but actually, that's, I, th- I made that point partly as an apologetic defense of the Ephesians 4 gifts, which sometimes people would say, yeah, but most of the church hasn't done this. I think, I'm not sure that's true. I think me- much of the church, admittedly, hasn't called that that, but I don't think that means that the gift isn't in operation. I think if St. Patrick was around today, you'd call him an apostle. In fact, many do. They often call him the apostle to the Irish. So the, yeah, the idea, you know, sorry, I know you guys are just thinking, what's this got to do with Guinness? Um, but, you know, missionary to the Irish. But actually, we might use a l- language for it. Or if Timothy I, the great patriarch who was overseas, responsible for church planting right across Central Asia, and writes these letters saying, oh, it's all right, we've just appointed a, a, a metropolitan diocese in what we would now call like Iran and another one in what's now Kazakhstan. And we've just managed to appoint some for the lands beyond the sunrise, which is, I think, China, but no one's quite sure. But he's just, that's, that's an apostolic gift at work. But they didn't use that language. They called him a patriarch. And so you went, okay, well, that's, that's your term. But I think the reality of the global reach of the gospel to go and plant, plant, plant is been there. This is in the eighth century. I think John Wesley would probably be called that if he was operating today. I think if Hildegard of Bingen was around today, you'd call her a prophet. You probably wouldn't use words like mystic. That's what they tend to use, language they'd use in the 13th century. They'd say this person's a mystic or a visionary. I think we just say, no, that's a prophetic person or a prophet. I think that's a better Bible word, but that doesn't mean the reality's not there. I think if you saw Charles Spurgeon, you wouldn't just call him a preacher. You'd say, this, this is like an evangelist, but an evangelist like with serious boots. Like this guy is a heavyweight evangelist and, and many, many people like that. And if you don't use those words, you just find other words. And you do call them missionaries and monks and visionaries and patriarchs and preachers and popes and bishops. And you use all kinds of words, but I don't think that means the reality is not there. And in the 20th century, 21st century, we do the same thing. Because right? a lot of churches in our day wouldn't use those words either. And we call them strategic leaders, or activists, or visionaries, or worship leaders. And we might go, I, even there, that's not to say there's no such thing. You know what I mean? No, that, sometimes you might say that gift and you'd use a different word for it. But the gift that's at work, the risen Christ is still giving these gifts to strengthen his people. Even if what, he's, what we call them has changed. Because Jesus doesn't stop giving you a gift because you don't give it the right name. He's always giving gifts to the church that the church might be equipped and strengthened to reach maturity. But if we want to encourage and cultivate them, I think it does really help to use the right name because it enables me to say to that person, that gift you've just used, that's in the Bible. And this is what it says about that gift. So now you can join the dots between your, the thing you just felt God lead you to do and what it says in the Word. And then you have parameters and biblical guidelines to help you grow and cultivate it, which I think is very helpful and which we don't quite have if we use a less biblical word for it. And so let's develop a healthy call-out culture in the church of being able to say that. I think that's this gift which is at work uh, when it comes to spiritual gifts. Anyway, let's read Acts chapter 11. And I'm going to read from verses 19 to 30. And then from chapter 13, verses 1 to 3. So just the Antioch bit. Chapter 12, as you know, is, goes, sort of passes, um, goes from Antioch back to Jerusalem and then goes back to Antioch. So Acts 11, verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he'd found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. 
Now, in those days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. And this actually happened during the reign of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to their ability to send relief to the brothers and sisters living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Now, chapter 13, 1 to 3. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. This is the word of God. There are five paragraphs on, of two or three verses each on Antioch in this section. I mean, it's two sections I've put together. Uh, it's four in Acts 11 and then one in Acts 13. And the four Acts 11 paragraphs, I hope even in the way I read it, you could see what happens, that the four Acts 11 sections trace the development of the church through the Ephesians 4 gifts, which are never called the Ephesians 4 gifts, right? But they... It's not like that's what Paul is doing when he said, oh, by the way, these are going to be the Ephesians 4 ones, um, it's a special heading, uh, the 1 Corinthians 12 ones, well, Ephesians 4 ones, yeah, that's not, the but these four are all operational in Antioch in this very quite obvious little way. Luke has a, a little summary sentence at the end of each of these four paragraphs, and Basically, if you follow it through, I think it just it runs really evangelists to apostles to teachers specifically or pastors and teachers and then prophets. And you can see the way the text flows because each of those paragraphs has a little, you might call it a punchline or the, and this is what happened. You know, if you're a Monty Python person, the, and there was much rejoicing. We, you know, so as in, then they all shared the gospel and everybody was sharing the gospel. It was all great. They were all preaching the gospel and evangelizing to everybody. And a great many people came to the Lord. We. And then they sent, they put the people in Jerusalem heard. And so they sent um, Barnabas up and he came up to Antioch and he was great and he saw all this stuff and he was brilliant and he encouraged them to remain faithful. This is a, well, you must, I think the apostolic gift and a great many people were added. And then he goes, so he goes, goes off against Saul and comes back, brings him. And, that, and that's, they taught people for many years. Uh, for a whole year, they taught many things. And in Antioch, that's where the disciples first got the nickname Christians. Whee. And then finally, prophets came down and they said, this is what's going to happen. And the church were incredibly generous and gave this huge gift. That's how, it, that's how the text is, is working, right? So in the first paragraph, you have evangelists, verses 19 to 21. In the second paragraph, I think you're talking about apostles, even though the word isn't used of Barnabas yet. It will be. Uh, Barnabas, it says they sent. They, so ex apostello, right? It's the, the verb. They, they, as in they sent out. Apostello, I sent. And so they ex apostelloed. They ex apostled Barnabas, which doesn't mean they kicked him out. It meant they sort of they sent him out to Antioch. And so I think this, we're in, meant to join the dots between the, uh, the evangelistic gospel preaching in verses 19 to 21, the apostolic sending of Barnabas in verses 22 to 24, then you have clearly pastor teachers, Saul arriving, not a bad guy to be able to bring in as your teaching pastor, I suspect, um, verse 25 to 26, and then in verses 27 to 30, it's about the impact of the prophets. And the church responds with great generosity. And each of those four gifts produces a different sort of growth in the church. So evangelists come and a great many people believe. That's what we read in verse 21. Lots of people come to faith. But they haven't yet been discipled and matured in the same way, but they've all come to believe. And then the apostle comes and a great number is added. Now, I don't necessarily want to make too much of the difference between added and believes because it may be just a stylistic variation. But you, you wonder if that's the evangelist who's preaching and lots of people believe and then the apostle comes and actually draws them in and adds them into the community, perhaps. And there is a bit of that in Acts at times. People believe and then they get added in. It's not quite the same. Maybe. I'm not sure we've got enough to go on there, really. But evangelists come, people believe. An apostle comes, people are added. A teacher comes, and a great number is taught. And then a prophet comes, and a great number give generously, radically, to the, to, to the poor, to, for justice and for equity in the community of God. It's all, with each one of those steps, you can almost see them moving through the circles in the purpose-driven life diagram, right? <laughs> You read the, sorry, this is a very Western-centric remark, isn't it? And particularly Western leaders who first read leadership books in the late 90s, which is like me. 
But in, in Rick Warren's The Purpose Driven Life, you have everything's alliterated. Obviously, in Western theology, if it's not alliterated, it isn't true. And so you start with, out, you have people out there in the sort of out in the community, and you, then you get into a, I can't remember even where, it's community and then, in, or then crowd, or uh, our crowd, community, congregation, committed core or something like that, right? So, but you basically move through the circles. And I think what happens in, if, then you, you can also do it with the letter M as well. So you have evangelists come on mission and they're preaching the gospel out to ordinary people and they're getting saved. And then the apostle gets them from mission into membership. And then the teacher brings the maturity and they start getting recognized as Christians. And then a prophet provokes them to ministry so they serve the poor. And then finally in Acts 13, they are in, in the highest point of the purpose-driven life diagram. They're in magnification. They're in, in worship. They're in disciple. That, that's, the, that's the way that... Oh, gosh. Wow. It, you can, I, of all of the things I preach, I've never felt so much validation from the crowd. This is like, man, you can do the purpose-driven life from Antioch. Wow. I'm going to do that. Right. So this is... So, this is what's that? You do the do it with the letter X. Now, Alex is saying, yeah. So they're all out there on the xylophone, and then they come in. Initially, they're a bit xenophobic, but then they move in. I don't know. Goodness gracious. Yeah. I'm out. I'm out. Right. But actually, there is something to this, isn't there? That obviously, I don't know if I'm actually not sure. I've never checked whether Rick Warren draws on Antioch at all. But, but there is a bit of that, right? Even if I'm, it's a little tenuous, but there is a bit of that. That evangelists are out there in the community at large. But as the church, as this 11 verses go on, the people are being drawn closer and closer into Christ, aren't they? They're, they're growing up, and each of the gifts seems to be taking them a step further. They're saying, you need to hear the gospel, you need to be added to a community, you need to be taught what the Bible says, your life is going to be conformed to the likeness of Christ, and then you need to be provoked to make a sacrificial gift in order to help your brothers across the world. And it's actually ultimately the prophetic word that does that last stage. And then when we meet them in Acts 13, they are in the magnification stage because they're having a worship prayer fasting time, and surprise, surprise, the gifts all appear here as well. Acts 13.1, now they were in the church in Antioch, prophets and teachers... And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, now set aside Barnabas and Saul, who from that point on will be called apostles in the book of Acts, uh, to the work to which I've called them, which ultimately is that of preaching the gospel. Or what you might say, evangelism. And so they send them off. And so the gifts, in a sense, are all at work even in that little three-verse section as well. I don't think Luke's even doing this on purpose. I don't think Luke's saying, I better make sure that this fits with the structure of that letter Paul wrote. I think it's just the normal everyday way in which the gifts of the risen Christ operate in the church. And because that's the way the church works, Luke narrates it and Paul summarizes it somewhere else. But that's how the gifts function. And they're all needed to pull the church into maturity at different stages and in different ways. And you might say at this point, well, that's great for Antioch. Chuffed for them. What about in my local church where we just don't, in the nicest way, we don't have people, people are not at that level. That's not, I'm not at that level, they're not at that level, that isn't what's happening, right? These people in Antioch were teaching, preaching the gospel to Gentiles for the first time in human history. Right? This is pioneering evangelism like no other, right? Maybe apart from Philip the evangelist in Acts 8, you, you don't really have another example of somebody deliberately going to totally unknown people groups like this before and saying, hey, we're going to tell you about Jesus. So this is a groundbreaking evangelistic moment. I'm, I don't have that. I've got, you know, some people invite people to the Alpha course and some people do that more than others. That, but I'm, we're not at that level. Or you might say, well, yeah, their teaching pastor's the Apostle Paul. Ours is not. Or you might say their apostolic, their apostolic mission broke into Asia and Europe, and ours is really about whether or not we set up a second congregation in a slightly different part of town. Or, like, you might say, these guys are just not at my level. Their prophetic guy prophesied that there was going to be a famine hundreds of miles away, and, they, and he was right, and the people believed him. None of those things happen when the prophetic people in our church... The prophetic people in my church throw in a curveball picture, and I then go, no, oh, that's interesting. And then you have, or you go, now, I'm not, please, I don't want to disparage that. But you, you, if you're thinking, I'm trying to verbalize what sometimes people can do, which is they put the distance between their own, their own gifts in their church and the church in Antioch and then say, so I don't know how I'm supposed to help develop this. It sounds great in theory when you say it with the, the big, you know, and the circles and everything's alliterated, lovely. But what about in my church 
To which a slightly strange response I'd make, but I think it might help you, is don't flatter yourself. Because your teaching gift is nothing like the teaching gift of the Apostle Paul either, but that doesn't mean you can't teach and faithfully pastor your people. It doesn't stop you using that one of the gifts because it's probably the gift you've got. So you go, oh, that's all right. I, I, I know I'm not as good as Paul, but I can live with that dissonance because I know that that's the gift he's given me. And I say, well, if that's true, that can be true of all of these gifts as well. And I think sometimes that happens when people put too much blue water between the New Testament and today, and they say, yeah, but look at the quality of the healings and the miracles. And you say, okay, I'll, I'll embrace that. I think you overplay it sometimes because you're often writing from within a Western context where signs and wonders are less common than they are in other parts of the world. But even that, so let's grant you that idea. Isn't there a big gap in the level of persevering faithfulness in the New Testament and your life? Or just theological insight and your life or pastoral wisdom in your life? Of course there is, but that's okay. You live with the gap. You say, I'm going to close the gap as far as it's within my power, but ultimately I'm going to trust that God will make good even the difference that exists between their practice and mine. And we can do the same with all the gifts. It might also be, I should say, that some of the prophets in Antioch are not at the same level as Agabus either. Because then actually says a group of prophets came down. So who's to say that some of those prophets weren't also bringing encouraging prophetic pictures that didn't say, here's a famine a thousand miles away that you guys need to respond to. Oh gosh, there it is. Maybe they weren't, that. Maybe they weren't like that. He was. Maybe there's others. We, the prophets and teachers in Acts 13. We don't know what their prophetic gifts were about. You read the letter to Corinth, you've got prophets everywhere. Some of them are so immature and undeveloped in their gift that they don't realize that it's polite to let the first person stop. Imagine if that had happened just now. Like Toby's in the middle of his word and the next person just jumps up and interrupts him. It's like, oh, oh, actually, it's all about this. Someone else comes up with another one. These guys are not mature, but Paul doesn't hesitate to call them prophets. So I just sometimes we can overdraw that. Oh, you know, they've got that and we're just way down here. I think I don't, don't overdraw it and, and don't flatter yourself that that's not true of the teaching gift you have as well, because I suspect it is. It certainly is for me. It also might be that you just struggle to recognize gifts in other people that you don't share. I think there's a, that's a, if we're honest, it's easier for me to identify potential young teachers than it is to identify potential young apostles or evangelists. Because it's more the gift I have. So you, can, you just pick it out of people easier. You think, oh yeah, that person's like me. But that may not be true. So there's a number of factors that might be at work here. So let's assume, shall we, that one, the risen Christ is still giving gifts to his church. And two, that we need those gifts to be equipped for ministry and maturity so that we might all grow up into the, the one head who is Christ. How, given those two assumptions, how do we encourage these gifts in the church? How do we do that? Four things. The first thing is to develop what I called a few moments ago, call-out culture. But I want to spend a little bit longer on it now. Because I think we need to learn how to identify and recognize the gifts in others, even if we're not quite sure how to develop and enhance the gift. And I, there will be gifts, like all of these gifts will be operational in your church because Jesus loves your church. They might not be called that, they might be embryonic, they might be basic, there might be all sorts of contradictions to it. And you might be nervous even about using the word in some cases because you think, well, if I call that young guy a so-and-so, he might become very self-important. There's all sorts of wisdom calls to make. But are we just even to look and think, let's say I don't, I'm not even going to say anything yet. I'm simply going to observe these gifts at work in my church. I had this last Tuesday in staff prayers. In our, and so we've got a bigger church staff. It's, you know, probably 30 of us sitting around a circle or something. But as we're going, it's just fascinating. No one's talking about Ephesians 4. No one mentions any of these gifts in the whole morning. But it was funny, I knew I was going to do this, and I just noticed them as you're going around the circle. And so there's, we're, we're just sharing from the weekend, and someone sharing a story about how on their site, they were looking around for one of, their, one of the fellow pastors who's also on our staff, and they didn't know where he was, and they went to his wife and said, do you know where Moses is? And, they, and she said, no, I don't know where he is. And they're looking around everywhere, and then eventually they find him out on the street at a bus stop sharing the gospel with three teenagers. And they, were, they told the story, they were like, oh, that's where Moses was, everyone ha, 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 and carried on talking about something else. I was like... That's, that's, the, that's the gift of the evangelist, right? So he, he's, he's called a pastor in our church, but that's what evangelists do. 
quite innately. And then somebody else shares a story about how they'd got the bankers in who were assessing the scale of our loans and overdrafts, and they showed them around the church. The banker was just open-mouthed and couldn't believe all the things the church was doing. And the, our, our finance nerd, basically, is just sharing the gospel with the banking guy. And I was like, okay, formally, your title is executive pastor, and gift-wise, you would say, oh, I'm really into the finance. But actually, and he is. Just, you're, just, you're an evangelist. So you see it, right? It happened in there. And then as staff prayers goes on, the first prayer comes from one of our pastors, and he starts, Lord, he opens out and says, Lord, and this is when I noticed it, and he prays out and says, Lord, thank you that you are a good shepherd. And you kept me, literally, that's the first thing he said, and I was like, this is going to work really well for this illustration I need to do, because <laughs> I've just had two great evangelistic stories, then a prayer time, the first thing someone says, the pastor, obviously I'm sitting there with a teaching hat on, and then one of our pastors is about to go across to the States and spend some time connecting with apostolic leaders from all around North America, and he, was wanted, he wanted to share about that so we could pray for him, and I was like, that's the apostolic gift taking place. And then our, a bunch of our musicians had just got back from a songwriter's weekend, where they'd been spending lots of time together seeking God, praying for one another, some prophetic time. I was like, this, all of these gifts are at work in this room. And I was quite excited about it, but it wasn't the time to preach Acts 11. So I just sat down and was like, I'm just going to observe this and save it for next week. But it's kind of fun to see. What, and you, you see the exact same thing in the last hour or 12 hours, don't you? You just, so I don't know, I don't know what job description Donnie formerly had. I imagine you just call yourself the pastor of the church or something, I guess. But when somebody, somebody does the notices and as much evangelism spills out of them as when Donnie did the notices yesterday. It doesn't mean he's closing the meeting. We've had a worship time for an hour. And he's like, but you know that there might be some people between here and your hotel room who don't know Jesus. Are you going to share? Now he's not at that point saying, I'm changing from pastor to evangelist. He's just expressing who God has made him to be. And then you see, again, the way Rigby comes up and just brings both a sort of an apostolic, hey, fathery, this is what we should do together, but also let's underline that prophetically. Let's make sure we don't miss what God is saying. And you've got your teachers and your pastors, and the whole room's working like that. And you think, yeah, this is what happens. you just got to identify it and see it and notice in others, let alone the prophetic contributions we heard. So the chances are that your church, and probably even your leadership team, has a similar range of gifts in some way. Some might be more developed, and they'll probably be more developed in proportion to who you are, because generally, if the leader is very strongly with this kind of gift, that will shape what other people in the church think leadership looks like. And they will become more like you, for better and for worse. Right? They do. That's what happens in churches, doesn't it? The leaders shape what people expect a leader to be and do. The question is, how do you, do you, do you mention the gifts that you don't share yourself? Are you, you actually have to be more attentive, not less attentive to those ones, don't you? Because they won't happen orga organically. Right? People in my church will probably care. People who want to lead in my church are probably going to care about the Bible. But they might, if I'm not careful, they might not think that the prophetic ministry is as important. Because it's not, just not a gift they share. I value it. But if I don't talk about it, they won't realize we think it's important. They won't just pick it up from seeing the way I do things. Do, you, do we identify them in others? Do we praise them? Do we call them out? And some of that call-out culture is actually just a question of humility. Because it's basically to say, I don't have this gift, and we need it to flourish. And so obviously I've got to talk about it. And it's quite easy to have, I don't have this gift, without also concluding, but we need it to flourish. Because what we often do is to say, I don't have this gift, and no one would say this, but this is what happens. I don't have this gift, so it can't be very important. <laughs> if I don't have it, right? Now, no one would say that, but... <laughs> But you probably recognize there is a hint of that, somewhere in your heart, maybe. Where you say, I don't have that gift, and, and I do therefore think it is a little bit less needed than that one. And some of that's okay, because some of it is, of course, evangelists should say, the only thing that matters is preaching the gospel, and teachers say, the only thing that happens is people knowing the Bible. And you, some of us, that's what makes us who we are. But if we, if we don't recognize that that can, could be a flaw, we're at risk of invalidating gifts we don't share, and the mixture of humility and recognition is what you see in Barnabas. So Barnabas recognizes, and he doesn't tell, spell this out, but I think it's pretty clear because of the word so in verse 26. Many people were added to the Lord, so, therefore, Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. Now, grammatically, that doesn't make a lot of sense on its own, right? Well, lots of people were added. Obviously, we have to head off to Turkey then and go and find, I mean, you know, they're, kind of, they're in Syria. That's a lot, Tarsus is a fair distance. We have to go and get this relatively untried, highly controversial guy to come and join our teaching team because if, well, obviously, people have been added to the Lord. You think, what's the missing, what's the premise behind, that's, that's been hidden in Luke's 
you know, language there. He just sort of, many people added, so obviously I have to leave. And it doesn't make any sense unless you assume that behind that is Barnabas saying, I don't think that all of these new people who've been added are going to be taught effectively if it's just me. I think that's, the, that's, the, that's what I'm assuming the premise is in verse 26, right? I had to realize, all of these people have been added, I don't, think, I don't think I'm up to, I've got a lot of gifts, I'm an encourager, I can see grace, I encourage perseverance, but I think the kind of thing these people are going to need, we're going to need some big beasts, so off he goes and gets the biggest beast he knows and brings him to the church. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, to me implies you go on a very quick journey from self-awareness to humility to need to call out culture. Like, oh, right, I've got to have you because I think we've seen this gift at work in you and without that, I'm not sure we're going to flourish. And we do that all the time in normal life. No, but you, re- you come to recognize your limitations and as a result, you call out for help. I had this the other day. There's a pipe at the side of my house just streaming out water. And I think, yeah, that, that, that looks like something in the loft is leaking. I'm not 100% confident what that is. So I get out my ladder, climb up into the loft, open the lid, look inside the tank. That's weird. The tank looks like it's at the right level. I can't see anything leaking in. I can't. And that's basically where my plumbing knowledge just hits a wall instantly. I'm like, okay, I don't know what I was expecting to find. Like, maybe there's a duck in our tank, in which case I could do that. But other than that, I'm really not sure what I thought would happen. Um, you know those people who open the bonnet or the, whatever you call it, the hood, you know, the bonnet of the car, and they look inside, and they're like, Ugh. and then they shut it again. But it's like, what were you expecting to find? And I'm that guy. Um, and as a result, I come back down the steps of the ladder and I just think, yeah, okay, I think we're going to need. So you go online and you find with the last plumber stitched us up completely. So I thought we need to find a new guy. So I just look up this guy and I don't know who he is. And I just hit, you know, put on the phone like this and go through. It goes to, straight to his voicemail. And just to say, hi, my name's Andrew Wilson. Ja- Jamie, the, I understand you're Jamie the plumber. Oh, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every, and he comes around, and, help, and within the next day, he's come around. And as soon as I called him out to be who he claimed to be, he was able to, he was released to use his gift to my benefit. That's what happens, isn't it? When you call somebody out, you, you're summoning a gift out of them that they have. Like, he only lives a few hundred yards away from me. But if I hadn't called him, there's no way that the gift that he has is leveraged to my advantage at all. And that's exactly what's happening in the New Testament. You, and it's what I think has to happen in our church. We're, we're looking around and saying, I can see there that there is a gift that I need, and I'm going to call it out of you by identifying it and naming it as such. And we need to do the same, especially with the spiritual gifts we don't have. So I think that's the first thing we can do. We develop what I've called call-out culture. The second thing we can do and this, I think, is the main point of this movement and this conference. I'm maybe stating this too strongly. But I think that really the reason why we are here is because we want to remain connected to other churches and individuals whose gifts can supplement and strengthen our own. That's the reason why you don't go independent, really. It's because you say, I, I want to be part of something, not just something bigger, because I like conferences, although personally I do, but because I think I need the gifts that these people have to strengthen me And so if you want to develop the Ephesians 4 gifts, you want to call them out and identify them in your own setting, but you also want to be part of a setting where you're exposed to gifts where other people are then able to draw gifts out of people in your church that you might not be able to reach or identify in the same way. And I think that comes across clearly in this passage. None of the named individuals in chapter 11 is from Antioch. Right? There's three named individuals, three, I would say, Ephesians 4 gifts. None of them are from Antioch. Right? Barnabas is from Cyprus. He's the apostle. Agabus, the prophet, is from Jerusalem. Paul, the teacher, is from Tarsus. They're all visitors. They're all from outside. Because the church in Antioch is so new, there's no one there yet. And these guys, as they all come in, the gifts arrive in Antioch from outside to strengthen and reinforce. The, the church in Antioch, it's obviously not a tactical decision for them. It's just the way the church was. But they have become instantly connected into a wider network where big gifts that aren't their own can come in and fortify the church and then move on. Or not, as the case may be. This is not the same thing as a preaching circuit. Right? It's not the same thing where we go, well, we're doing a, pre- a pulpit exchange. You know, those, uh, that's probably not what we call it in our kind of church. But uh, you know, some of you have been in churches where that's true. You know, we'll do a pulpit swap. You know, I'll go and preach for you, you preach for me. That, that's not bad. I've done that too. But mainly what's going on there is that somebody with a very, very similar gift is saying, I'll fill in for you because it'd be nice for me to have a change. And you fill in for me because it'd be nice for the, my church to have a change. And that, that dynamic, but it's basically a swap. But that's not what's happening here. This is a supplement, not a swap. 
right? This is, you're not getting enough of this kind of vitamins from me because I'm limited. I don't have that gift in the same measure, so we're going to bring in somebody who's not like me in order to strengthen and fortify you. And that is made possible by being connected to the wider church, including to those whose gifts are different from yours. And so in my church, the, the, the gifts we get in, you know, there's lots of great preachers out there we could invite to preach, but generally, we don't invite, most of the time, the people we invite in are not just good Bible teachers. Because we say, actually, there's a bunch of people on our team who do that reasonably well. That, that's probably not the main area of vulnerability here. What we need is people who move in these particular sorts of gifts that we as a key senior leadership team don't really have to the same degree. And so if we're going to invite guests in, we want to make sure they're going to give something we don't bring. Because otherwise the church just gets more and more lopsided. You're like, well, you're already very lopsided like that because of your key leaders. And then when the key leaders invite people just like them, it just the whole thing imbalances. And so we say, no, we need people who will come in and lead us. So we, you know, guys, Steve Nicholson from the Vineyard or Dave Devonish or people who'd come into our church, Mike Pelavacci, who'd come and bring something that we know we don't have in quite the same way. So we're evangelism and pastor teachers. We go, yeah, we're pretty strong there. Um, but the, on, the, on the prophetic side particularly, that's not where we're as strong, so we need to bring that in. And they, what happens, of course, is when they come in, they minister. And loads of people in the church come alive to their gift. And so I go, oh, we could have this all the time. You think, now that's what I needed to know because those guys, they're lovely. They'll listen and write notes on my sermons, but it doesn't, it doesn't zing with them in the same way that when this person does because they see an alignment of gift. And that is something that's very difficult to do just within one local congregation. Now, the powerful thing in Antioch is that by chapter 13, they seem to have multiplied. So in chapter 11, all of the named individuals are from outside. But by chapter 13, we've suddenly got this string of named individuals who are just prophets and teachers. And we assume that, you know, Barnabas and Saul, I don't know which, whether they're prophet or teacher or both. My guess is Saul is definitely a teacher, really, by gift. But these other guys, Simeon, Lucius, Manaean, We've got prophets and teachers who are now homegrown. Even in the gap between Acts 11 and Acts 13, they've got an, an, an indigenous leadership team who are displaying different Ephesians 4 gifts. How did they do that? Did Agabus run a training school? I don't know. So you've got to come out on Saturday mornings. Saturday doesn't really work for us. Could we do front Tuesday evenings? But it, is that how they did it? I don't know. Like, but, they, but they found a way of replicating their own gifts into the church so that the church is beginning to develop its own. And that's vital because in verse 3 of chapter 13, they're going to send their two key leaders away. And if they hadn't done that, if, they, if it had simply been a, lots of people come in, lots of people, they could do their thing and then disappear and no, nothing gets built on the ground, then when the Holy Spirit says, send aside Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul go and there's all hell breaks loose in Antioch because there's nobody there. The third thing we can do is almost the opposite of the, what I've just said, as in getting people in, which is to prepare your church for the cost of sending people out. Because, of course, we're not only consumers or receivers in this process, we are also givers. There are gifts your church has, your team has, that other churches need and can be strengthened by. And so we have to prepare our churches to the, you know, within contextually appropriate, right? If you've only, there's only four of you, then you probably go, okay, right now, we just need to hunker down. But you need to prepare your church theologically and prophetically and spiritually for the cost of responding to prophetic direction and partnering an apostolic mission. And this is what the church in Antioch had absolutely nailed. Right? A prophet said there would be a famine hundreds of miles away, and before it's even happened, they've taken up an offering and sent it off. I'm not sure if that would happen in my church. I think it's, oh, we've got a lot of needs already. I don't know. I, I hope it would, because it's in the Word. But I, I kind of think, well, maybe I'd be a bit more skeptical. I'd go, this guy, I don't really know him. I'm not sure. Let's just see if, it, let's see if there is a famine. And if there is, I'm sure we can respond later or something. But now, that's how to encourage prophetic ministry. When people bring something that you, you think, I'm, I can't be certain that this is going to happen, but I think God is speaking here. And then you commit yourself to respond to the prophetic Word, even though you're not certain that it will come to pass. That encourages prophetic ministry in a profound way, doesn't it? Because prophetic people go, oh, guys are going to take this seriously. And they might actually make them more likely to be accurate next time because they go, wow, they actually are going to take this seriously. I'd better make sure I'm not making it up. <laughs> Whereas if you don't take it very seriously, kind of neither will they. Do you know what I mean? That's what happens. If you treat prophecy too trivially, the, the prophets themselves go, it doesn't really matter if I'm wrong because they probably won't do anything anyway. <laughs> For consideration. The Holy Spirit says, and so that they've already got in that habit 
of sending money that's costly for them. Like they don't, it's not like us going, you know, you know, God willing, writing big, you know, big checks or giving big IOUs. That was funny to me last night. Like, we, yeah, we don't want any money, just IOUs. I was like, what is happening here? Anyway, um, <laughs> never, just seriously, more faith than me, clearly. But, um, but in that sort of context, then they're not, they've, they've trained in a, an environment of saying, we're going to commit ourselves to giving financially. And so when the Holy Spirit says, you're two key leaders who established this church, who you love, who you, you knit your hearts to, they're going to go. The church has already been trained and they've practiced responding to the prophetic call of God so that when it's a sacrifice of two people, they're ready to go. And I imagine that both of those gifts to the wider church, both the money in a cult- culture where people are very, very poor. It's not like our our context. It's not like your church going, wow, we've got to find £5,000 to give to another church. That, that probably is costly in your budget, but it's nothing compared to the cost it is in, in a culture where most people are on the breadline, which they were. And so they've got that. That's very costly. And then when they send the two leaders, that's massively costly for the church, not just in a, oh, they must have missed them. But have you ever read the letter to the Galatians? Have you, have you realized what happened to Antioch after Barnabas and Saul had left? So the church didn't it's not like they didn't suffer for this. They did. Because the letter of the Galatians describes what happens in Antioch after Paul and Barnabas have gone. And it didn't take long before even Barnabas had been hoodwinked by the Judaizers and the church was in chaos over the issue of whether Jews and Gentiles could eat together. In other words, they, were da- they, they actually lost something, right? It caused problems. They, by the grace of God, were restored and it was repaired, but it was costly for them. It wasn't, yeah, we sent these guys out and we got even bigger and better. It's like, no, we sent these guys out and a few months later, one of these two sent us a howitzer of a letter or basically sent the Galatians a howitzer of a letter telling them what we had done. You read about it in Galatians 2. So it's costly and the church needs to be prepared for some of the sacrifices and sometimes, you know this, you send good people away and you want to trust that God is going to give you even more as a result and sometimes he does and sometimes, at least immediately, he doesn't. And you feel like our church is weaker for having sent those guys. Our church has got more problems because that person who went or that couple or that family, they, they did stuff, but they also just solidified things and they made people feel secure and not worried. And now they've gone. All of these people are infighting and that these guys were there. They, that probably wouldn't have happened. And you've seen it happen, right? If you've been around a while, you have. And so, but that doesn't mean the church shouldn't do it. It actually means the Holy Spirit said, send these two, and they did because they obeyed God, but that didn't necessarily mean that their church was immediately going to go from strength to strength because we read what commentators generally call the Antioch incident. And by the way, if your church ever gets an incident named after it, that's a bad sign in the history of the church. And, And they did. And so it was costly for them, but they obeyed the call of God nevertheless. They didn't just offer the resources that were convenient for their vision. They didn't just offer the sermon downloads and the hosting events and songs. Sorry, that made it sound like I was having a dig at the guys who hosted this, who I think are amazing, right? But I mean, sometimes what we do is we say, we'll, we're resource people by doing lots of things that help our vision. I, I'm, I'm at risk of doing this. Writing books, preaching downloads, all that stuff that actually works for me already. Whereas actually resourcing the church sometimes means, no, I'm going to send them things that I don't really want to do because they cost me. They actually make my life harder, not easier. They make life more frustrating rather than more envisioning. But I think God's saying I should do it anyway. And that's what these guys did. And we are all here as a result. Because that is how Gentile missions started because of the obedience of some people who it really cost something to let these men go. So we can develop what I call a call-out culture. We can seek that sort of connection with the wider church. We must need to prepare our churches for, to pay the cost of releasing ministry to other churches. And the fourth and, I guess, final thing that I think we can do, at least for now, I freely admit that this is not in this passage, but it's in a lot of other passages. And we know from elsewhere in Scripture that Paul and Barnabas really cared about it, is we can train the whole church how to operate in all the gifts. So we don't just train people to function in the gifts either that we have or that we already notice they have. But we train the church how to operate in gifts that we don't have and most people in the church don't have either. But we can teach how to do that from the Bible and explain that this is how the gifts work and and that would be true of all of the gifts. And um, Brian just mentioned the book I wrote on 1 Corinthians. That was my lockdown one. I didn't enjoy lockdown. I mean... You may, you, may have, you may have only had one big lockdown where you come from, but in our country we had three. Lockdown one was my worst by far. I hated it. But I was anyway I was sitting in a little room with very little sort of light space, 
and no friends, and I was just like, I was trying to write this book on 1 Corinthians. And in, and I, but I, I obviously got to know the letter pretty well. And what you find is that Paul covers a huge amount of ground in that letter about all kinds of different issues, like you know, sin and idolatry and immorality, loads of pastoral questions. But he also has entire chapters talking about the way in which different ones of the Ephesians 4 gifts, which again, are not called the Ephesians 4 gifts. Do I get another amen from John Hosier? I do, great. Um, <laughs> I got a thumbs up. That's all I needed. Um, but so as in, let's forget that that's where... The, but all of these four gifts, but he has like a whole chapter on each one hidden into a letter that's mainly de- firefighting a pastoral mess. And have, you, have you noticed that? So you'd probably think, if I said to you, well, where are they? So these, it, 1 Corinthians, so it's 16 chapters, and he's pretty much got a chapter on each of these four gifts. And you'd think of 1 Corinthians 14 on prophecy. That's probably the one you'd go to. So yeah, that's basically a chapter that from beginning to end is saying, eagerly desire all the spiritual gifts, but especially prophecy. And when you prophesy, do it like this. So he's got a whole chapter on prophecy. That's the most extended practical passage on that gift in Scripture. And that's the one to teach from in detail if you're going to try and help the church grow in the gift of prophecy. You might also think of 1 Corinthians 9 on evangelism. You might say, actually, if somebody was going to say, here's a, a Pauline philosophy of evangelism, You'd probably use either 1 Corinthians 9 or Acts 17 to see what, and Acts 17 is him doing kind of what he says in 1 Corinthians 9. It's like, I have become all things to all men that I might save some. I've not put any obstacle in the way of the gospel. Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. It's like, it's an evangelist passage ranting about contextualization and love and the absolute commitment to preaching the gospel and becoming all things to all people so that anybody might get saved. So you've got 1 Corinthians 14 on prophecy, 1 Corinthians 9 on evangelism. He does it with apostleship as well. My go-to, if I'm teaching on apostleship today, my go-to text is actually 1 Corinthians 4. It has been for years. It's not just, you know, since long before I was trying to write this message. But I go to 1 Corinthians 4 because it's so helpful at clarifying what apostles today look like and do. Because a bunch of the New Testament, about when it talks about apostles, much of it is talking about apostles in a quite specifically eyewitnesses to the resurrection and writing the Bible kind of way. Much of the, because that's who they are. That's, if you're Peter or Paul, that's what characterizes you. But in 1 Corinthians 4, because he's talking about his ministry along with the ministry of Apollos, and then in 1 Corinthians 9 with Barnabas, we've got these, not these, what I call apostles with a little a. You know, the guys who, the kind of apostles we have now, rather than apostles with a big A who write the Bible and witness the risen Jesus. I say, but Barnabas and Apollos are this kind of person. So when Paul goes, this is what apostleship like now, I, I go, yeah, that's still true. And all of the things he's saying there are true of Apollos. They're true of people who function in apostolic ministry today. And that's a fantastic place to go to make that case. And then, of course, Paul also has, I'd say, two chapters, really, on the essence of, what, of how to preach and what pastor teachers are to do. I don't think there is a better passage on the essence of Christian preaching in the whole Bible than 1 Corinthians 1 to 2, which is effectively Paul's extended case of this is why I came preaching in the way I did. This is what my message was. This is how I did it. This is how I lived it out. I didn't come with wise and persuasive words. I came with the cross and I did it like this because I didn't want your faith to rest on the wrong thing. I wanted it only to rest on the power of God. I wanted you to see how crazy the power of God is that it would be expressed through a crucified Christ. And so I went on and on and on about that because that's what preaching's supposed to be. So I think, wow, in a letter in which he's trying to deal with incest, sorry, I said that word louder than I actually expected. Um, I think in my head, I was thinking, I really want to make sure people get how surprising that is, but the rest of the sentence hadn't built up in volume enough. Um, so I do apologize for that. Uh, <laughs> in a church where... He had a litany of issues, including, as you know, incest and prostitution and food offered to idols, all the rest of the things. He still finds time, again, almost unintentionally, to talk about the essence of Christian preaching and teaching, the essence of Christian apostleship, the essence of Christian prophecy, the essence, essence of Christian evangelism, and he's not even writing a letter about the Ephesians 4 gifts or whatever you call them. He's just training the church how these gifts are supposed to work. Because the church is charismatic by nature and it needs training. And actually, the more charismatic it is, the more training it needs. So, I'll wrap up. Let's imagine you are in a church that believes in the charismatic gifts, but in practice is a bit too dominated by, if I could not be unkind, by people like you. And I'm assuming here for a moment that a lot of us, like me, pastor-teacher is stronger, and we're more likely to lean into that than something else. That wouldn't be true for us all. It's probably true for some, so maybe many. 
If that's true of you, and the church as a result is more skewed that way, what can you do? I think you can call out the gifts wherever you see them, even in embryonic form. You say, I think that... Someone did that to me when I was 16. Right? My youth worker said, I think you have a gift to impart truth. And I was like, I, don't, I, I really don't know what, what, you, what that even is. But she just said, I think that's a gift. And that, that, that's one of, one of those moments in your life that just knocks you off on another course that's still bearing fruit now. But actually, you do that for people who don't have... And she, she was not. She's a prophetic person, not a teacher. It just changes the trajectory of your life. So you call out gifts when you see them. Use their biblical names, if possible. The second thing you can do is to connect to the wider church, inviting other gifts into your church to strengthen and supplement the ones you, particularly the ones you don't have. The third thing is you can be prepared and help your church be prepared to give money and people towards apostolic mission in response to prophetic challenge. And the fourth thing you can do is to train all the church how to use all the gifts to the glory of God. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the gifts that you've given to the church, and we thank you so much that their purpose is to cause us to grow up to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Oh God, in him all the fullness of deity dwells bodily, and we have been promised that we will increasingly grow to become like him. And that that will happen as gifts like this are released among us. We pray you would strengthen us. We pray, other, we pray the people in our community would say of us what people in Antioch said of the church in Antioch. These people are like Christ. They really do look like him. So we're going to give them a nickname, Christians, to, to help draw the connection. We pray that you would make us obedient and sacrificial and wise and zealous for spiritual gifts. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hmm? I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. um, I asked him if we could just have a little Q&A real quick, and then we're going to go into some prayer. But uh, I just found that so helpful. Thank you so much. I enjoyed every moment of it. Um, I, one of the questions I have is, uh, I think our kind of collective experiences in our churches, we sense like the, uh, you call them the embryonic stages of these gifts, Ephesians 4 gifts. So we see that within our churches. For what, what would you say is the difference between these expressions of the gift versus the office of a gift? Hmm. Yeah. yeah, so I'm not a big one for the offices. Um, I wondered so, if you were going to say that. Yeah, so, well, I, I, if I, I think that... So this is now I'm going to get in very hot water because I've got Lex sitting over there. I've got John sitting there. I mean, this is a, this is a, hot, a difficult crowd in which to make... I don't know if I, they might agree with me, actually. I'm not sure. But I think that when you... I, if I take prophecy, which is often the one where it most happens, I, I generally don't find people saying, um, oh, I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a teacher, I just have the gift of teaching. People don't generally worry about the nuance of that. People generally say, if you have the gift of teaching and you're doing it, then you are a teacher. And they're not worried, oh gosh, the office. But usually it comes more with the gift of prophecy. So that's, why I would, that's where I'm, a bit, I'm more hesitant about the rationale. I think it was a Wimberism. And if it's, I don't want to besmirch the good name of the great John Wimber. But I, I, think, I think they used, in the vineyard, they used to talk about, you have prophets, you have people who have the, the gift of prophecy, and then you have people who prophesy, as if there was almost like a, a... And I just don't see that in 1 Corinthians at all. I might have just nerded out on 1 Corinthians too much. But in 1 Corinthians 14, you'll say, eagerly desire spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Um, if a person's, you know, Paul elsewhere, if a person's gift is prophecy, let them do it in proportion to their faith. And he said, when the, when the next prophet speaks, the first prophet should shut up. You're like, he's clearly not there saying, this is office of these heavyweight guys like Agabus. This is numpties who don't even know you're supposed to let the other guy finish speaking before you start speaking. <laughs> but seriously, the whole chapter's like that. It, he's trying to help ordinary Corinthian believers who are prophesying. But prophet is just, prophetes is just the, the noun from the, that would be associated with the verb. So I, I don't really understand why... At a biblical level, I don't think you can make the case that there is prophet with a big... Now, I do think that you might say there's a prophet with a capital P in the sense of Isaiah, Jeremiah, and you might be trying to help people get... You're not doing that, right? So you don't need to stand up and speak in King James English and people will write it down. Now, I get that. But I think sometimes it's used almost like you've just got the gift and this person is the office. And I, no, I think that... I think you just use that word of people who are doing, using that gift. 
And obviously, the more consistently they do it, and the better they are at it, the more likely you are to commend them as a prophet rather than simply recognize that what they were doing was prophesying. I can see the wisdom in that, but I, I just don't think the sort of triage way I've heard it communicated is particularly helpful. And I would make a similar comment probably about other... It just doesn't come up with evangelism in the same way. Yeah, I, I, people don't worry about the idea of, am I the office of an evangelist or am I just evangelizing? But with prophecy, I think it often gets... Why, why does it matter? But in, I think in, with prophecy, people do tend to make that gradation, and I'm not sure that's mm. always helpful. Yeah. yeah, thank you very much. <laughs> so, um, I have another question for you. Mm. You're such a gift to us, and uh, we are facing a new season as a movement. Mm. And uh, I would love your encouragement for our next season, the next mm. year, the next three years, the next mm. five years. Yeah. Uh, you have spent some time with us. You know most of our team. Uh, you know most of the, ch the churches that are represented here. I, I think we, we trust you. You're a friend to us. And we, we would love some wisdom and some encouragement. It's a cousin, did you say? <laughs> <laughs> we, had, we had a fun, fun conversation about it last night. Oh, that, yeah, bless you. Um, I mean, I, I think anybody... This, much of this is, much of the most, the encouragement I would give you is, much of it is of a piece with the encouragement I give anybody who's still in pastoral ministry after the last two years, really. So I just think the very fact that there are this many people here, and the very fact that you're not just here, I mean, how many churches were represented? These guys were all surprised, by the way, by the number of churches that ended up being represented on the stage last night. I think so, oh my gosh, I didn't know there were going to be 30 odd of those, I didn't know there was going to be seven of these. And I was like, praise God, that the fact that that's happening at all is remarkable. That's not, as you know, that's not, at least in the Western church, that's not the direction of travel for most. A lot of our churches have, and yours may have too, by the way, and if it, if it but churches are either contracting or they're having to close things. Or, and I think your, yours, many of ours probably are, but the fact that you're here, I, honestly, I, I, there's, there's never been a time when more people in ministry have wanted to leave. That in, certainly in living memory, but I, would, I suspect it's probably been hundreds of years since the four... I'm trying to think of, a, of an event that might have caused as many people to leave pastoral ministry since the Black Death. Maybe, maybe in the heyday of the Enlightenment, I don't know, but not many where you get people saying, oh, a third of pastors want to leave, or are, in the, in the, in the nation as a whole. Now, that wouldn't be true everywhere, I know, I'm speaking as a, as a Brit, but I mean, I know that's true in North America, much of the West. And so I think that to, simply to be here is an incredible, that's the most, the encouragement I almost all want to give is, like, forget advance for a moment, still being a pastor, still wanting to serve the people of God, still being here and trusting Jesus and trusting that he's going to give you enough to get through the next week is itself an extraordinary achievement, I think. And I don't say that to blow smoke, I, I just think it's amazing, but I'd say that to almost anybody outside of this movement. I think within this movement, there's, an, there's another layer to it, though, which is that you're you're running, even just to say, you are running an event, and clearly it's not just a title of an event, it's like the culture of what's happening, where you're simultaneously saying, let's learn from what's happened, and let's not allow the regret or whatever, the slowness, to stop us from achieving what God has for us. And I think, that's extraordinary. I, I don't think I've ever been invited into a setting to speak where that's been the vibe of what the conference has been about, I think you can get navel-gazing conferences, and you can get, let's go regardless of it. But I think to get the right blend between, as Donnie was saying as we were praying just now, looking inward and looking onward, I'm like, that's really hard and incredibly impressive. And it's what I'm picking up from the, the guys I know better, which is most of the, you know, the guys at the front and so on. But all the people I know, I'm seeing that extraordinary. So at the same time you're clinging on to Christ and pursuing ministry, you're also looking to grow from and through and pursue more of what God's going to do among you, I think. I think that is extraordinary, and that's why I was thrilled to come. But I can see it here, and it's, it's pretty amazing. So. Thank you that, so that's much. That's what you meant, right? That's fantastic. Wait, 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 wait. One more thing. <laughs> I would love for you to pray for us. Yeah, yeah. Can we please stand? Yeah. And uh, just being a pastor <coughs> of reception. But, Andrew, we, we'd love for you to pray for us. Mm. Father, we really want to attain to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We really don't want any longer to be children bashed every which way by the latest wave of doctrine. We don't want to be disappointed. We don't want to get to the end of our lives and feel like we haven't seen what God 
could have done with us because we hesitated or because we imploded or whatever it may be. Lord, we want to pursue, we, we see the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ and we want that for our lives and our churches. That's why, that's why we came. Lord, would you move among this body of brothers and sisters and the thousands of people they represent and would you knit us closer together, not just to one another, but to the heart of Christ. Lord, may we catch more of who he is. May we be transformed more into his likeness. May we mature every day, week, month, more and more into the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. We pray that you would grow us and in, increase our capacity, but not just in an, in an achievement-oriented way, but our capacity for affection and for love and for peace. Lord, I pray you'd increase the capacity of the people in this room for the peace of God that passes all understanding. May, may their ability to receive what the risen Christ has achieved for them be larger as a result of having been at this conference. I pray you'd increase the capacity for joy, for patience. Oh, Lord, some of us, we need our patience just to escalate dramatically. And we don't just need to see more things done. We need to ha have more capacity to wait on the Lord and to trust that his purposes are good. We pray our, our capacity for kindness and self-control and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness. Lord, I pray you'd increase the capacity for gentleness in those of us who are, have had a frustrating season. Lord, we ask in Jesus' name, would you make us more like, more like Christ? Would you fill us with more of the fruits of the Spirit to the glory of God? Amen. Amen. Amen.